Today on IFS Talks, we are honored to be speaking with Terry Real. Terry Real is the best-selling author of I Don't Want to Talk About It, Overcoming the Secret Legacy of Male Depression. Also, How Can I Get Through to You? Reconnecting Men and Women. And most recently, The New Rules of Marriage, What You Need to Make Love Work. Terry knows how to lead couples on a step-by-step journey to greater intimacy and greater personal fulfillment. He founded the Relational Life Institute, offering workshops for couples, individuals, parents, as well as a professional training program for clinicians. Terry's work with its rigorous common sense approach speaks to both men and women. Terry is a proponent of full throttle marriage and has been called the most innovative voice in thinking about and treating men and their relationships in the world today. Terry, we welcome you to IFS Talks, and thank you for being here with us. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor. Thank you for inviting me. Terry, you are a major figure in the field of couples therapy, also specializing in men's issues particularly depression and relationship. I'd like to appreciate your dedication and beautiful work of decades for this noble cause of helping couples to find a better life together. We all know how fundamental can be for child development to have happy, well-regulated and connected parents around. So, in your opinion, can better couples also be better parents? No question. Absolutely no question. And better people are better parents. You know, you know this already, but let me just say it. Uh, one of the things I say to the people I work with is the best gift you can give your kids is your own recovery. And when I speak of recovery, I speak of what I call relational recovery. That is recovering that original state of connection to ourselves and to others that is our birthright a state of connection that trauma and the culture pushes us out of with uh, all of that consequence. So uh, the best thing you can give your kid is a healthy you. Uh, They say that it's the height of pretension to quote yourself, but I always do quote this one quote from, I don't want to talk about it. May I quote myself? Yeah, please. Oh, please. Yeah, we'd love to hear it. Family pathology rolls from generation to generation like a fire in the woods taking down everything in its path until one person in one generation has the courage to turn and face the flames that person brings peace to his ancestors and spares the children that follow and so when you talk about bringing recovery to the parental unit I speak to the people that I work with about daring to change the legacy, transforming the legacy, transforming the defaults that were given to you by your family of origin and the culture, and uh, handing to the next generation a completely different, or maybe not completely, but radically different, and hopefully healthier set of defaults. And... You know, I say each person is a bridge spanning the those who came before and those who come after. And their fate uh, rests on your work. 
there's an old AA saying, pass it back or pass it on. Yeah. And to the degree to which you do the sorting out of your legacy, uh, which I believe is the true meaning of the word individuation, uh, and to the degree to which you have freedom from your own automatic responses, to that degree you will be not just a better parent, but not a burden to the children who come after so you. So important, yes. Beautifully said. It sounds like with, with your model, the relational life therapy model, there's there's a few different layers to legacy unburdening. I'm hearing about kind of addressing individual triggers, but also acknowledging how things have been passed down. Is there a process specifically that addresses like how trauma has been passed through generations? Um, I don't go back generations as a rule, although I, I learned how to do that by one of my mentors, Olga Silverstein, who used to do the uh, an incredible genogram, go back five generations and pick out all the themes. Uh, I, I usually only go back one generation, um, sometimes two. And uh, I'm, I'm concerned with, well, My correlate uh, to um, managers and protectors is the part of you that I call the adaptive child part of you, mm -hmm. the part of you that adapted to whatever was going on. Uh, and that uh, part of you almost always represents, or uh, you can have many different adaptive children, but let's call it a conglomerate for the moment. That part of you represents always uh, a reaction to what was being thrown at you. Mm -hmm. uh, I say the adaptive child has two uh, avenues of being formed. The first is reaction. And that's the one we always think about because we always think about trauma. So uh, reaction means if I have an intrusive mother, my adaptive child puts up big, thick walls. If I meet in an adult Uh, an adult man, a guy with big, thick walls, uh, it, it, he, it, one thing that may have happened to him is that he had a lot of intrusion growing up, and so mm -hmm. he needed those walls. I don't know if you know him, but I have a friend and a colleague, Thomas Ubel, the German mystic. Yeah. A collective trauma. <laughs> I love his many phrases, and one is, we must always respect the exquisite intelligence of the adaptive child. You did exactly what you needed to do back then. Mm -hmm. But I have a saying, adaptive then, maladaptive now. You're not in that environment anymore. You're not that little boy or girl. You're talking to somebody different than your family, and you have different resources than you did as a child. So it's the adaptive child that resists what's coming at you, but the other piece is that it internalizes what's coming at you. You model yourself uh, on what you see. It's the adaptive child part of us that is the repository for all of the multi-generational projections. It's like a battery. So if you have a harsh inner critic, for example, you probably have multi-generational legacy of uh, harshness and criticism. And uh, the spark jumps between your inner critic and you. It's the last line of the spark plug. But that spark goes back and back and back. 
I say we tend to hold ourselves the way we were held, and so you internalize it. So our adaptation is almost always a mixture of resistance and internalizing both. And it's the particular balance, the tension uh, of that mixture that makes the adaptation so uh, rich and interesting to deal with, so necessary back then and so troublesome now, all of the above. Terry, you do a wonderful integration work, as we can hear, of many authors in the field of couples and gender issues, and also parts work, as you just said. Can we say, Terry, that your approach to men and couples is on the spectrum of the mindfulness-based or compassion-centered therapies? I would say that, um, but not that alone. Uh, there's a... You know, my, my friend and colleague, Carol Gilligan, has a phrase. She says, there is no relationship. There's no voice without relationship, and there's no relationship without voice. So, uh, yes, compassion, certainly self-compassion, and compassion for your partner. Uh, I would put it more as uh, staying in the wise adult part of ourselves, uh, some correlates to what Dick would call the self capital S, staying in the wise adult part of ourselves and remembering the relationship, mm -hmm. remembering the whole. And that's what I'm writing about now in my new book. I'm talking about the difference between us consciousness and me and you consciousness. Okay. And us consciousness remembers that we are a biosphere. Our partnership is a biosphere that I live inside of. And it's in my interest to treat that biosphere well. When I'm not in my wise adult, when I'm in an adaptive child or wounded child part, uh, I lose that sense of the relationship and it becomes zero-sum and adversarial. Um, it's only the wise adult part of us, prefrontal cortex, not, not triggered. Uh, that can hold the relationship and um, uh, maintain a sense of uh, that relationship and our own enlightened self-interest to do well by that relationship. When you move into what I call me and you consciousness, adaptive child, uh, you lose the relationship and everything becomes adversarial. It's a zero-sum game. One wins and one loses. And once you're in that part of you, all bets are off in terms of doing anything constructive in your relationship. And so the mindfulness piece uh, is what I call relational mindfulness. And it's, it's the art of uh, moving from that triggered adaptive part of you back into the wiser uh, self. Compassion, yes, but I would also say wisdom, uh, perspective. Uh, the ability to see the, the ecological whole and not just be two adversarial individuals. That shift from that adversarial me and you consciousness to the us consciousness, from the part to the self, I think, Dick might say, is, uh, is mindfulness. And it is an intentional practice. And it's an intentional practice that can be cultivated and learned and strengthened. 
And how long does it take for people to learn this relational language? Uh, you know, it, it's like learning any language as a, an adult. I, I, to be honest, I think it takes a couple, three years to really get fluent at living a relational life. But w- one of the things that I, that I say uh, is that this way of thinking and these techniques are so different from the culture at large and so powerful that doing them badly will transform your life and your relationships. And you can start doing them badly right now. Terry, you talk of first consciousness couples and second consciousness couples first consciousness as fighters or flyers or fixers um, and you also say that you are a first consciousness fighter are you still a first consciousness fighter yes that's my knee-jerk response i grew up in a violent family uh, my wife belinda grew up in a violent family and we're both fighters we're a symmetrical couple boom 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 screw me screw you and uh that's our that's our particular dance There's an old saying in family therapy, there are two kinds of couples in the world. There are symmetrical couples, screw me, screw you, screw you, screw me, screw me, and then there are complementary couples. Uh, come talk to me. No, I won't. Come pursue or distance her as a complementary couple. And I'll, I'll tell you a little secret. When you're dealing with a symmetrical couple as the therapist, you want to introduce some complementarity. Screw me, screw you, screw me. Oh, honey, I don't want to fight. And you go down. And then, and then you invite the other person to come down with you. When you're dealing with a complementary couple, it's good to introduce some symmetricality. I'm going to treat you badly. I'm going to put up with it. I'm going to treat you badly. I'm going to put up with it. I'm going to treat you badly. Don't treat me badly. And that breaks the pattern. So it's interesting to know what pattern you are and what you need to do to break it. Belinda and I are symmetrical and I'm a fighter. Why? You got something you want to say about it? <laughs> Sounds like parts. <laughs> so much of the way, Terry, the way you work with couples fits with parts work and IFS. Do you find that as well? And do you do you believe in multiplicity? Sure. Well, I have a tripart system of the psyche as as uh, dick does they don't completely line up but they line up pretty remarkably and you know we're, dick and i are not the only people with tripart systems there are lots of people ta lots of people work with parts one of the things that does if i can say this as a non-ifs therapist who's worked with parts for 50 years it does get me a little bit when any work with parts is seen as ifs oh yeah it's it's a language that's been around for a long time hasn't it a really a really long time <laughs> i remember once i was presenting with dick we were doing the same couple i i would do them in the morning and he would do them in the in the afternoon And uh, one uh, diehard IFS uh, person came to me and said, I just want to congratulate you. Your interview was absolutely masterful. And I said, oh, thank you. They said, yeah, it was IFS. <laughs> and I thought, the best compliment this guy could give me was that I'm in line. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>
Terry, when so many in our field fear to sit with couples even for 50 minutes, you can spend full days with couples in the most severe and critical crises. Where do you find such an energy and space to do this? Well, I started off about four years old in my family growing up. You know, I was, uh, all hell was breaking loose and I did my best to regulate my parents. Uh, I'm comfortable with a certain level of uh, chaos and you know, blatant discharge of feelings and, because I grew up with it in a way that maybe somebody else wouldn't be. But like all RLT therapists, uh, my strength comes from my detachment from outcome. It's a spiritual principle. Okay. Uh, is this couple going to stay together or not? No, I don't know. Is this couple, is this couple uh, going to shape up and stop beating each other up or are they just going to beat each other up endlessly? I don't know. I do a lot of shrugging. I don't know. I'm not God. It's not my life. It's your life. And we have very clear boundaries in our LT. You know, if somebody says, um, blah, 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 and they give me a hard time. Uh, I'll often say to them, look, I want you to know I'm in service, not sales. Uh, if you want these skills, I'll give them to you. If you don't, uh, there are other people lining around the block who do. So give up your chair and let somebody else have it. And I used to say that way before there were actually people lining. I, I think it. You know, it's, it's just bullshitting. So you don't have an agenda? Or what is your agenda? It's just to help them to, to get... I have a wish. Okay. I, I have a wish. I have passionate wishes for the people I work with. I wish they would open up. I wish they would have greater intimacy. I wish they'd be better uh, people for children to witness and, and be with. But at the end of the day, it's between you and God. It's really, I'm not in charge of your fate. And I will say to somebody, look, um, you know, we're working, in, this is, you, you, you've behaved better in the past. Uh, you're indulging yourself now. Uh, I can give you, uh, we can do work that will help you relax and shape up if you want. If you don't want, you don't. I want you to know at the end of the day, I go home to my happy family and you go home to your misery. And the reason why my family is happy is because of all the work. Linda and I have done the same work we're asking you to do, but uh, I don't have a gun to your head. It's really up to you. One of the things I say to my students is don't be more ambitious for your clients than your clients are for themselves. Yeah. You wind up with a big headache. Don't want more for them than they want. Are there other aspects of spiritual practice that are running in the background for you, um, aside from non-attachment to outcome? What oh, else is God. present that keeps you working with couples and keeps you motivated? Uh, that's a beautiful question. I'm going to say hope. Mm -hmm. And I think RLT is a, is a phenomenally hopeful What we hold the bar very high for our clients. We expect dramatic change quickly. And we, we usually get it. We often get it, not always. Um, but, you know, regular therapy kind of goes like this. And we want you to go like this. 
So uh, I can teach a man who is a good-hearted guy who doesn't know a damn thing about how to cherish anybody, how to cherish somebody. I can break it down and give it to them. One of the differences between RLT and ISS is the phases. There are three phases in RLT. Okay. The first is confrontation, loving confrontation. This is what you're doing that's blowing your foot off. You will never get more of what you want if you keep doing this thing that you're doing. For example, uh, we talk about relational stances, dysfunctional relational stances. And here's a classic. Angry pursuit is a dysfunctional relational stance from in our book. You will never get more of what you want by complaining about what you're not getting. That is not going to work. And so the first phase is this confrontation with the adaptive child part of you that is messing up your relationship. Once we have a clear picture of that adaptive child, we then take it back to family of origin and we do inner child work, which looks very similar to parts work in many ways and in many ways not, but in some many ways, yes. And then once we're done with the trauma work, and I say done, but you keep weaving but once that phase is complete, then you move on to teaching. And we're different from IFS. Dick and I have been around the block on this one in that we teach skills. We are explicitly educational. This is how you fight fair. Uh, this is how you identify your feelings. This is how you uh, tell your partner that you love them. Here, uh, open up your lips, say, I love you. Good. This is how you greet somebody when they say hello to you. You don't just brush past them and walk into the room, you say hello back. And uh, so uh, I think maybe because I work with so many men, uh, I, I believe that there's a place to be an explicit mentor. Okay. And, uh, and to teach people how to be more uh, relational. There, there's a lot of trauma work now that believes if you, remain, if you remove the traumatic obstacles to heal the trauma, that people will instinctively know how to be relational. But I think, in your guys' language, I think before you do that, you'd have to unburden them from all of the societal messages that they've gotten about how you do this, because they're wrong. And I believe that along with that work, uh, you you teach them what right would uh, would look like. So it's a three-step process. This is what you're doing wrong. This is where it comes from. Can you take care of that little boy or girl that's making so much difficulty? And now, okay, now that you're in your wise adult, let's arm that part of you with skills and wisdom to figure out how to get this done. Those are the three parts to it. also say the spirituality is the collision of two human imperfections. Want to say more? Oh my God, you've actually been reading my stuff. It's intimidating. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes. What I say is that we all long for the divine. 
Every one of us wants a perfect partner. We all want a God or goddess uh, to complete us. And what we're stuck with is a woefully imperfect human being, just like we are. And they're imp it's all well and good to abstractly say, well, they're imperfect, but the particulars of their imperfections really stick in the crawl and make for a lot of soul searching and difficulty. Uh, I'm a big fan of the um, child developmental uh, psychologist, um, Ed Tronic. And from him, I got that all relationships are an endless dance of harmony, disharmony, and repair, closeness, disruption, and return to closeness. And that disharmony phase, that disillusionment phase, uh, it can be really raw. It's not acknowledged in our culture how dark and raw that can be. But I talk about what I call normal marital hatred. Normal marital hatred. And I like to say, I've been talking about this for 20 plus years, and not one person has ever come backstage and said, what do you mean by that? We all know well. <laughs> So the, 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 the collision of your imperfection and mine is the stuff of intimacy and how we manage that collision. That's the character of our relationship. People try and get out of that imperfection, but it's how we manage it that is the very stuff of what renders us close. I, I talk to people about working with the man or woman you're with instead of the one you deserve. <laughs> uh, but there we are of course we don't it doesn't quite dawn on us uh, that if we could find this uh, super perfect partner they probably wouldn't be interested in us <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they might see through it all. <laughs> you also quote... Bettina Hunt, I guess. Uh, Bettina says, women marry men hoping they will change. They yeah. don't. Men marry women hoping they won't change. They do. Yeah. <laughs> What is that? Welcome, welcome to patriarchy. Yeah. Welcome to patriarchy. Yeah. And women want men to be more open and connected and relational. And men want women to uh, stay the way they were when they were first dating. And uh, when men don't open up and learn to be more relational, women close up and they get less generous. And that is the state of most heterosexual relationships in under patriarchal culture. You have uh, either shut down, distant, or um, entitled, irresponsible men often coupled with a uh, accommodating perhaps at times explosive uh, but certainly unhappy woman and then you put a little boy or a little girl in that family uh, and you, it's rife with all sorts of difficulties and triangles you know for example 
Have you ever noticed how many men are avoidant? We talk about pursuers and distancers. Yes. We talk mm -hmm. about anxious attachment style and the uh, dismissive avoidant, attachment yes. style. Mm -hmm. People haven't really commented much that there's so many men. I talk about the unholy triad of patriarchy. That there's a distant or irresponsible man, husband, father. That there's an accommodating, unhappy woman. And there's a sensitive little boy in the base mm. of that triangle who feels his mother's pain and uh, moves into caretaking. It, it isn't the way we used to think about it in family therapy, that the mother meshes with the son. It's that the son meshes with the mother out of compassion. But uh, it's a burden to be a caretaker instead of a child. And so uh, these burdened boys uh, grow up to be distant men because they're of the trauma of their caretaking position. Yesterday, we um, we we had a big exodus of of Trump, and I, I heard that it was even to the tune of macho macho man and uh, you know that that was actually playing and i admire so much your work as a therapist addressing uh the the systemic difficulty and challenges with patriarchy yeah but it it's so striking to me how many people are behind a macho bullying self-aggrandizing man um 94 million Americans. Yeah. So how how do we approach that as a society, as a culture, as therapists? I know you're you're doing the the, the hard work and and I've heard you speak about the next generation, the millennial generation being more in touch with sensitivity and more able to be whole. Yeah, yeah I do believe that. But these boys have been raised by feminist mothers, you know. It shows. So um the first thing is I'm not neutral and I don't like neutrality in the therapy room. Uh -huh. I am an intimacy merchant. I am on the side of intimacy. Intimacy is healthy. All of the research is completely clear. Intimacy is good for us. The lack of intimacy kills us. Literally, physically, it has deleterious effects. So... Um, I'm on the side of whoever is asking for more intimacy, which three out of four times is going to be the woman. It's women who carry the dissatisfaction. It's women who want more. Across the board, in heterosexual relationships, women are asking for more emotional intimacy than most men have been raised to deliver. And so to help a man open up and be connected to his partner and his kids, uh, is synonymous with moving him beyond patriarchy and beyond the traditional masculine role. Traditional masculinity rests on two pillars, invulnerability and dominance. The more invulnerable you are, the more manly you are, the more vulnerable you are, the more girly you are. And of course, what uh, across the board, women and children are asking, insisting on, is vulnerability from their men. There's emotional connection. I want you to come to the table and tell me what you've been feeling, uh, says a woman to a guy who hasn't thought about feelings in 20 years. And 
a lot of therapists will like, well, that's her opinion. That's your opinion. You know, let's think. No. What she's asking for is legit. Increased intimacy is legit. Now, the way she's asking for it may use, her delivery could probably use some work. But what she's wanting, I agree with. And so we therapeutically side with that person and bring the other person in. We want you to step up and meet these new demands. They're good for you. They're good for your kids. They're good for your body. Let me show you how to do it. And we sell it to them. Beautiful. Most men are good-hearted guys. Most. There are some bad apples, but most men are, are good and they're, they're riding the cross currents of entitlement and bewilderment. <laughs> Terry, you say an inwardly shamed based and outwardly driven man coupled with inwardly resentful and outwardly accommodating women That's America's power couple. Yes, it is. Bill and Hill. Um, that's it. That, that is, the, you know, because traditionally they're, they're, the setup, Eric Erickson uh, said uh, that it's the hallmark of a functional culture that the roles that you're socialized into as a child fit with the roles you're going to be asked to play as an adult, that there's no disjuncture between them. And when cultures are in a period of change, there's a disjuncture. And then people get maladaptive and they start uh, having symptoms and so forth. But right now, uh, you know, I, I like to say that masculinity is at war with itself. Patriarchy is at war with itself right now. I mean, literally at war, there are people storming the American capital with, you know, with arms. And it very much has to do with two versions of what masculinity looks like. Uh, all of those Trump supporters believe in traditional macho masculinity. That's why they like them. And uh, I would venture to say that the liberals who were happy to see him gone Uh, ascribe to a more nuanced and progressive form of masculinity. But this is war, and not just in America. It's going on all around the world. The strong men uh, have, uh, have re-arisen. Esther Perel once said, I like the line, that the great story of the 20th century may be the empowerment of women. The great story of the 21st century may be how men react to that empowerment. And right now it's split. There are those who are going forward, there are those who are going backward, and they are not very friendly toward one another. It's a pitch battle. Terry, it looks like patriarchy is the real enemy in intimacy. Yes. And It's time, uh, I know we're coming to a close, but let me leave with this. It's time for men and women uh, and uh, uh, transgendered folks and gender fluid folks, it's time for he, she, and they to unite. It's, it's time for us to move beyond uh, what I call comparative victimology. The entitlement of men and the oppression of women is real. I call that political patriarchy. And sexism is political patriarchy and has very real consequences, particularly 
the minute you step out of the West. It's time to understand that the system does great damage to both sexes. The system does great damage to both boys and girls, and it does horrible damage to the relationship between us. Yeah. And if we are going to move into healthy intimacy, women need to move into loving, firm voice, and boys and men need to move into open, connected hearts. And both of them are moving beyond the traditional gender roles of patriarchy. Somebody once said about RLT, it was deconstructing patriarchy one couple at a time. And I love that. That's what we're about. Can you say that one more time? Women need to move into... Firm, loving voice. And men... Open, connected hearts. Beautiful. Because the wound to girls and men has been, the wound to girls has been disempowerment, the loss of voice. The wound to boys is disconnection. So the healing move for women is re-empowerment. The healing move for men is reconnection. But when women are empowered, it, it needs to be empowered with love. And that's new. That's post-second wave feminism, which was pretty angry. Speaking up for yourself with love, I think, not only breaks patriarchy, but I probably get a lot of grief over this, but I think it's the next step for feminism. Interesting. Very interesting. And I consider myself a feminist. I have for 40 years. Under patriarchy, you can be connected or you can be powerful, but you can't be both at the same time because power is power over, not power with. It's dominance. So if you move into power, you lose connection. If you move into accommodation, you lose your power. I want to, I want to break that binary. I want people in general and women in particular to be strong and cherishing and loving in the same breath. And those are some of the skills we teach. I so appreciate that. How to, how to stand up to your partner and cherish your partner at the same, it's a difference between saying, I don't like how you're talking to me and saying, honey, I want to hear what you have to say. Could you tone it down so I could listen? Mm-hmm. Two ways of saying the same thing, but one cherishes the relationship. The other one doesn't. One works and the other one doesn't. So this is some of the skills that we teach. Yeah, it's incredible. Makes me think of a lot of clients who, for for them, at com- confrontation means that they feel as though they're they're going to be charged by a rhinoceros. Yeah, right. Right. Right, they've got to get into that place, but with love, right? It softens, and that that edge just softens, and there's connection. Yeah, with firmness. Yeah, whether it's the therapist talking to the client or whether it's partners talking to each other, one of my favorite quotes, and I'll leave with this: one of my favorite quotes is from the German poet uh, Goethe, and I paraphrase, but the quote runs something like this: "If you treat someone." as they ought to be. If you treat someone as if they were as they ought to be, they may become who they ought to be. If I look at you and I say, uh, Tisha, you can do this. I know you're a decent person. Look at your partner and with love in your heart, say that you need something different from them. Uh, and I hold that bar high. I'm 
reaching for the wise adult part of you and forming a therapeutic relationship with that part of you, you rise to the occasion. And that's the essence of RLT. We provide an occasion for our clients to rise to. Thank you so much. So I know we need to wrap up, but I wanted to uh, reflect that you're writing a new book. Yeah. Um, that that you have uh, an upcoming training for the general public on your website. Yeah, I'd like to invite everybody to my website. Just go to terryreal.com, my name, uh, and uh, make sure that you sign up, you you know, subscribe, and we'll let you know what's going on. But I'm very excited. This is my first online course for the general public coming this winter. And um, we expect it will be a big uh, course. And I've got a lot to say about how to make these relationships work. And what about your new book? What are you putting up? The book won't be out until next year, next spring. Its tentative title is Us, The Power of Moving Beyond Me and You. And it really is about which part of you am I speaking to? Am I speaking to the centered adult? Am I speaking to a triggered child? And it's for the general public about how to understand that and how to work with that. So Terry, thank you so much for having us and for helping us with your wisdom and experience. Our listeners will find in our show notes the link to your amazing conversation with Carol Gilligan as well. And uh, it was a joy to be here with you and Tisha and uh, wishing you the best for you and your work. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I wish the best for you too as well. Keep up the good work. And thank you. It was a pleasure speaking to you. I feel deeply respected talking to you. Oh, good. You are. Yes, you do.